You're listening to a podcast presentation of Hillside Foursquare Church in Reno, Nevada. Hey there, I want to invite you back towards the seat. We're going to be continuing in our series called Stir It Up. We will be in 1 Peter chapter 3 through uh, 4, 6 today. And I want to give a little sum up about what we touched on last week. It's important to kind of continue to rehearse context. And uh, what we talked about last week is how significant it is that Scripture is written to people at a specific time in a specific place. And in this situation, it's talking to wives and to husbands regarding their interpersonal interactions. And we discussed uh, quite a bit about how we need to know what we're doing when it comes to what are we going to make prescriptive or something that applies to all time for all people in all places. And for us to keep in mind, as we're reading this, First Peter's written to people living in the Roman Empire, and it's very stratified society. It's uh, between citizens and non-citizens. It's stratified by gender according to property or non-property owners, whether people are slave or free. And it was uh, something where a time when women were very, very expected to go along with whatever the head of the household would declare. There was no real voting rights for women. There was no real uh, significant place in society other than to be childbearers. Uh, a, a wife was considered to be someone who would have to, if the husband was worshipped whatever deities they worshipped, the wife was expected to do the same thing. And what we find is when Peter's addressing wives and husbands within this system, he's encouraging wives to be honoring and respectful to their husbands, while at the same time to be faithful to Jesus and to be obedient to him, and to let their conduct be such that it would not reflect poorly on Christ. And he's challenging men to elevate the way that they interact with their wives to be co-heirs with them in the promises that God has given to them, which is a completely foreign concept at this time. But he's telling them, you need to love your wives and to treat them well. And don't be harsh, because if you're harsh with your wives, it will hinder your prayers. Gentlemen, hear this. This is something that is still true today. If we are harsh with our wives, get that, it will hinder our prayers. Well, I don't know if I'm harsh there's this special trick I learned. I've been married for 33 years, same relationship with basically the same woman for, okay, nine different women, but in the same person for the last 34 years. I'm going to say this slow. If you want to know if you've been harsh, ask. I know. Hashtag ask, Louis says. Now, ask. Well, I, you know... I was just, you know, I was speaking strongly. If it's perceived harshly, it's received harshly. I shouldn't have to modulate my tone. My tone is my tone. It's been fine all my years. Actually, you can modulate your tone. You can learn to do that. I am the poster boy. Let me give you a 30-minute uh, infomercial on modulation of tone. Okay. Uh, Coke Zero helps. You know, <laughs> I'm teasing. Maybe. Uh, no, it's modulate your tone. You think one of the and this sounds silly. You, this is not my brother. Okay, I have three younger brothers. They socialized me to people. This is a bad plan when it comes to dealing with women, because when you're dealing with brothers, anything goes. You can do anything within reason that your parents don't see with your brothers. 
And it can be shouting each other down and arguing. And, you know, all three of the younger brothers want to come at you. You just start punching the small ones until it's just you and the one closest to you. I've heard that works. Okay? And it's like, who wins the argument? It's like, whoever's loudest. Talking in your outside vocal voice. And you can know I'm not marrying my brother. But you can still, in when those emotions that we can identify that occasionally rise up start to show up in our life and immediately we go to strong emotion. I feel challenged. I feel, I feel weak in my own opinion. I don't know what to do. I'm going to use this voice. I can make my wife non-responsive to me because all she may hear is Charlie Brown's teacher because she goes into a, I just want to survive this. Husbands, be kind. Speak in a way that's not harsh. Be willing to grow and to stretch and learn. If you're sitting there thinking, well, what about wives? You know, how many things it says in the Bible for husbands to do for their wives? Many more. The list for husbands is as long as my arm. And at the very top is, love your wife like Christ loves the church, laying down his life for her. Mic drop. To the wives, it says, wives, love your husbands like you do Jesus. That's not fair. <laughs> we acknowledge our love for Jesus is imperfect. His love is not imperfect. And he says, guys, I got a target. This is your target. This is what you're doing. And instead of bemoaning, oh, man, say, thank you, Jesus. If he's asking us to do something, he's not asking us to do something impossibly. It may be impossible in our own strength, but it's not impossible as we lay down our own life for our spouse, but we lay it down with Jesus. Does that make sense? Good. That's free. That wasn't even in my notes today. Okay. And it's also interesting. We got into last week you're reading through in, uh, in 1 Peter where it talks about, and then wives, obey your husband as Sarah did Abraham. And you can be looking at it and say, see, it says obey. There's justification for putting that in the wedding ceremony. It's just don't get too full of yourself, gentlemen. Because if you continue to read the scripture, which I encourage you to do, there's a spot in Genesis chapter 21 where Mo, or Abraham is arguing with God because Sarah has told him, I want you to get rid of that slave woman, Hagar, who lives in our house. And Abraham's like, I don't know what I want to do. And God says to Abraham, uh, Abraham, do what your wife tells you to do, whatever it is. I don't know what you're going to do with that, but it's like there's a whole lot of submit yourself to one another out of reverence for God. And there are times where you just need to take into consideration that your wife may have insight from Jesus that you don't yet have. Okay? If it's not illegal, it's not immoral, it's not unbiblical. Keep that in mind. Okay? Is that all right? All right, good. I will, as we head into 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, I want to talk about our orientation. I want to talk about the place from which we reference everything else in our life. There's lots of things that people can use for orientation. What are some of them? Non-rhetorical question requiring an answer. What can people use for their orientation? From this point, I live everything else in my life. What do we got? Huh? Okay, Baptist. What else? What are some of the areas that we function from? Humility, Humility can be. Politics can be one. Everything comes out of a political orientation. Everything is interpreted in that way. What else? Family of, Family of origin, what's right, what's wrong, based upon what I experienced growing up. Yes, what else? America! 
God's chosen people. Right? Well, we've got an entire set of historical, uh, when I say historical, I'm standing on one foot, historical kind of bent that says America's Christian nation, this is us, we've got to get back to this. The only people who can say get back are the Beatles, okay? <laughs> we do not go back to anything. We're called to go forget what's behind and to go forward. Our nation can call itself whatever it wants to call it, but the proof is in the pudding. And we can say our political orientation, our country of origin, uh, one of the big ones right now is our sexual orientation. People can, everything gets screened through that. The basis for which we're, we're going forward in this area, as we're reading through 1 Peter, and really we're reading through Scripture, is our orientation is laid out for us in Christ. Because we're starting in Christ. Because this is our place where we function from, in Christ. This is where all the instructions are coming. In Christ. You help me? Thank you. In Christ. In Christ. Everything comes from that. Because we have in Christ, everything will come out of that. If Christ is the one from whom which we orient, the, our North Star... Every decision, every priority, every value will flow from that spot of being in Christ. The problem is we don't immediately line up in that spot. This is the point of sanctification or being made holy. It's learning to align not just in our outward decisions, but in our inward motivations of things that drive us. And when we discover that the things that make us who we are do not line up with who Jesus is, we get to learn how to submit ourselves out of reverence to Christ, to the commands of Christ. And not just to have the outward obedience, but we're asking for the inner transformation. Christianity is not a, look at these fingers, white knuckle enterprise. Your willpower will get you not very far. Your willpower will get you three days into a 21-day fast. Your willpower will get you maybe starting on something, and you'll be overcome by your lack of ability to follow through because you cannot affect lasting change in your life through willpower alone. There has to be a motivation that stirs up that's greater than yourself. Why am I doing this? Because Christ died for me, therefore I will live for him. And this life, I live in this body. I no longer live by my own strength, but I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Badly misquoted Galatians 2.20. Oriented to Christ. Every other thing that's in competition with that, may God reveal it. And may we intentionally say, I step away from that, Lord. Help me as I step away. Help me to walk in your way, Jesus. Okay, with that background, 1 Peter chapter 3. Finally, which means as a pastor, he's probably coming close to the end. Probably. You can't always trust him, okay? Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But <coughs> Ginger. <laughs> I put ginger in my coffee and I had a piece in my mouth and I just took a chunk of ginger down my throat. <laughs> Sorry. It's good. <laughs> it works. April Stokes, thank you for that. 
not you didn't do that, but you told me it, ginger was helpful, and it's very helpful. I you can it's just like you can it's purging my system right now. <sighs> Let us turn away from evil. Yes, that's a good right, and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But if you, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And we read some of that, and it's like, I get it, I get it. What are we doing here? Noah and the angels and the spirits in prison. Can I get a, huh? I mean, did anybody besides me, you're agreeing to this, like, I don't understand where he's, nod, just nod. We're at church. You can, hmm, wow, Jesus, Holy Spirit, yes. We're going to touch on it. And there's some really significant, straightforward stuff here. And then there's areas, let me just throw out there, that are confusing, and no one really knows what he's referring to because we may not fully know what he's referring from. Like, what are the common points of understanding that they have? Like, I can talk to, like, Joni and Natalie can have a conversation about, let's just say, I'm going to just throw it out, somebody from their high school days, and they could be fully in the know. And I'm here going, who's this person? Is there, are they significant? Do we, would I ever have met them? And we're like, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. Sometimes Peter may be referring to something in Scripture that would be understood by the people that are hearing it, but as people who are looking at it 2,000 years later, we're left going, we don't get it. And if it's not addressed in multiple places, we get to say, this is important not to make an entire doctrine on. It's not like, you know what? We get to be the spirit preachers in prison. That's our new ministry. We're going to go preach to the spirit people in, in prison. Where are they? Can't tell you that. It's, it's, it's in 1 Peter 3. It's very deep. You know, we don't make a, a, a main focus on that. We'll get there in just a second. Since we are in Christ, our Jesus family values direct our whys, our hows, and our whats. And every interpersonal action that we have with other believers, with family, with work, with people we come in contact with, is governed by Jesus. And as a result, the challenge to us is be unified be sympathetic, love the brothers and sisters in Christ, have compassion, be courteous, have a humble attitude. This is a, okay, we've just come out of, here's all the relationships. Now in general, this is what you do. Be unified, be sympathetic, love your brothers and sisters, have compassion, be courteous, have a humble attitude. These are the things that are the guiding principles for the person who wants to walk with God. And then we get this quote. It's a, it's a quote from, the, from one of the wisdom books from the Psalms. And if you're wondering what the wisdom books in Scripture are, they are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. 
And these were very much used as a songbook by the early church, but also as major points of reference for little droplets of wisdom. And this one comes from, uh, I believe it's too small for me to read without my glasses. Anyway, it's in the psalm. It's a four-verse little section. And it says, if you want to love life, if you want the good days and to live long and prosper, and that's not just a Star Trek Vulcan reference here, okay? In general, this is how we go forward. This is a... This is the way, okay? This is the way in general that we live. Watch your mouth, avoid speaking evil, avoid telling lies, and if you do this, if you turn from evil and you do good and you turn towards good, you seek out and pursue peace and look to keep peace, God will watch out for you and he will watch over you if you pursue righteousness, he will hear you and he will answer your prayers. This is the, this, if you do this, this is the way that God invites his people to live and then this is how he will act towards you. But if you do not, God will, in general, oppose evildoers. He will align himself against them. So the whole thing is intend to do good versus doing evil. Peter's saying, because we're in Christ, this is what we do, Psalms declares it for us, okay? It's a general principle of life. This is what we do. Commit ourselves to the way and trust that there will be a reward or a blessing that comes from walking in that way, okay? So, at the same time, there's also this instruction. We talked about this a little bit during announcements. Always be prepared. Always be prepared. And that's not just Cub Scouts. It's not just Boy Scouts. It is to be thinking, what will I do if something happens? Um, one of the things I really have appreciated when we, Joni and I, were attending the martial arts gym that my brother and sister-in-law are, are a part of um, is the thought process, of, especially when my sister-in-law, Jessica, is teaching young women and older women how to have a better sense of awareness when they're walking about town, to to. Uh, kind of uh, dissuade bad guys or bad ladies from attacking. And the things that she would say is, always be prepared. Walk around with your head on a swivel, paying attention to where you are. Put your stinking phone in your pocket, okay? Do not have your earbuds in because if you do, you can't hear anything, okay? Be aware. Walk like you're from Brooklyn, Nobody wants to mess with the person who looks like, yeah, you want some of this? <laughs> Seriously. The person who's like, the body language speaks volumes. Well, I'm not big. You know what? You can be four foot nothing and be walking around. You want a piece of this? You're aware. You're being prepared. And maybe you've got your keys. If you don't have a golf tool, I don't care if you golf, but you've got a golf tool with a, the divot thing. It's got two prongs on it. You walk around with that in your hand. Why? Because if somebody comes up and wants to mess with you, you could poke them with it if you needed to. Okay? That's free. Hashtag copyright Jessica Locke. Um, but it, it's being prepared. The instruction we're having here is not just self-awareness. It is when we go into a situation, people may ask you, why are you doing what you're doing? Or they may make a comment. If you don't have anything locked and loaded, it may be that you were never intended to say anything, and you don't beat yourself up. 
But I'm of the opinion that we can always be rehearsing just in case something comes down the road where I've got some potential ones that the Holy Spirit can say, this one, offer something up here. Always be prepared. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 says, Don't be afraid and don't worry, but in your hearts, in the center of your being, honor and revere the Lord. Keep him focused as the one who is the, at the very center of your life. Be prepared to give an answer, a well-thought-out reasoning, a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. May it not be said of us that when someone says, well, why do you believe in Jesus? I don't know, I was raised in it. May we offer something because he died for me, because he forgives my sin, because he gives me what I need to live for him today. People don't have to validate you. Well, that's not a good enough reason. I would like you to explain more. No, I'm sorry. This is it. This is the beginning part. A minute ago, we listened to people talking about what do you appreciate about your spouse? I heard Heather say, because he keeps trying. Ladies, you know how important it is that a husband keeps trying and does not quit? That's my number one thing that I do is I try. I kid you not. That's my thing. I got nothing. I got very little else, but I will always try. That's not just me trying to get brownie points here because I'm a trier. But it's good. We try. Well, they go, in a marriage, is that enough? Is it enough? It's, it's something. Rather than have somebody who's willing to throw in the towel all the time, patience. Heard of Ken and Christine going back. Is patience something that's needed in a marriage? Is it the sole basis of marriage? Maybe, sometimes. I went to high school with Christine. McQueen High Lancer fight song to be sung later on. No, no, nope. The highlight of our life was not high school. Thank the Lord for that. Forgetting what lies behind and setting our hearts on the things of Jesus. I got an amen from the Sonora Union High School Wildcats up in the front. This is not just about persecution. Oftentimes people may want to know, why would you follow Christ? Isn't that just a political ideology by the right-wing wackos? And it's like, well, I can see where that may be coming from. Let me tell you why. Why are you compelled to live as a Christ follower? Why? Simple, straightforward answer. This is not a car salesman, how can I get you into the kingdom of heaven today? But you never know where a conversation might go. Personal testimony goes a long way, and it's really what we've got. Revelation chapter 12, it talks about how the believers overcame the devil. We overcame him by the blood of the lamb, thank you, Jesus. By the word of our testimony, what he's done in our life. And by our unwillingness to hold on to this life is the most important thing. Those three things, that's how we overcome the devil. Jesus, what he's done for us, and loving Jesus more than even our own lives. When you're doing this, don't be a person who gives defenses of their faith with antagonism, harshness, and disrespect because that kind of flies in the face of the whole who Jesus is. Do it with gentleness and respect so that when you are slandered, have you been slandered for your faith? Has someone actually said to you, I can't believe what an intellectual moron you are that you would put your faith in somebody who supposedly lived and died 2,000 years ago? Yes, especially you educated people, therapists and whatnot. You know, you, you go to college, shouldn't that have cured you? One of the things I signed up for in my freshman year of college was the Bible as literature. Because Bible. I didn't know a whole lot, but I knew Bible. 
And I went to the class, and he said, are you a junior in college? And I said, no, I'm not. And he says, then you're probably just one of those religious wackos, and I don't want you in my class. I want people who can, like, dismiss all that BS. But he actually said it. I didn't say it just now, Mom, because I don't want you to be mad. It's like all that BS. It's like we don't need that in here. We want people who can just analyze the Bible as literature. And you, you know, when you become a junior, I don't want you taking my class. It's like, I, do, I don't want to take it either now. <laughs> when you are spoken of negatively, may your life be a witness of the goodness and gentleness of Christ. And that may those who speak negatively, those who slander, those who revile be put to shame. When you suffer doesn't say if. When you suffer, let it be for doing good because of Christ. And if it's for God's will that this is happening, don't let it be because you're doing something dumb. Suffering doesn't happen because you didn't do your job. I can remember having a conversation. State of Nevada is a great place to have conversations about slacking. Because at least in the, I worked in the fire room. And this was like the lowest of the low places. And it was inevitably the place where somebody is going to get whacked because there has to be a scapegoat. And it's usually the file room, the people in this particular spot. And there was one person I worked with, and their thing was, how come everybody's always picking on me? Why is everybody always, you know, it's always so-and-so's fault. How come it can't be Louie's fault? Or how come it can't be Brian's fault? And the, my boss would so eloquently say, this is, it's because you didn't fulfill your contract and what you were called to do, what you were assigned to do. But that's beside the point. It's not beside the point. The point is, you're not being persecuted if you're being held to account for doing dumb things. And I do, almost don't want to belabor this, but we can call just about anything persecution, and what we may be experiencing is the consequences for dumbness and making dumb decisions. If you do dumb stuff, you will get consequences, not because the devil, oh, the de no, your flesh, you are your worst enemy sometimes. If you're going to suffer, let it be for doing good. Matthew 10 says, the student is not above the master or the teacher. If they killed Christ, expect something along those lines. Christ suffered one time for sin. The righteous suffering on behalf of the unrighteous. The sinless one on behalf of the sinners, Romans 5, Hebrews chapter 9, that he might bring us to God. Jesus died in the flesh, and according to Romans chapter 8, was made alive in the spirit, and that same spirit of God is at work in us, making us alive and, and bringing life to us. Here's where things kind of get funky. In the days of Noah, Peter is referencing some things from an extra-biblical source. And this is a really fun rabbit trail, okay? If you like rabbit trails, this is called the Book of Enoch, okay? And there's so much fun in the Book of Enoch because the Book of Enoch is a book that was quoted in Luke. It's quoted in 1 Peter. It's quoted in 2 Peter. It's quoted in the Book of Jude. Paul references it. And yet it's not considered to be canonical or part of Scripture. But it was considered to be reliable in that it shows up and reliable people are quoting it. And there, basically, it's the story written from a Jewish perspective on how the Garden of Eden went down and how 
Genesis chapter 6 went down and why you had the sons of God and the daughters of, of, of Adam that interbred with each other and they turned into these, these half demon spawn, half human things, and these men of renown, and it goes into all this detail behind Genesis 6, 7, and 8, and it's really, really neat, and it's extra biblical, so it's it's a rabbit hole. Don't start quoting First Enoch chapter 6, verse 12, this is why I do what I do. It may be informative, but it's not like the basis of your faith, okay? Does that make sense? Is that a good enough disclaimer? It's fun. <laughs> so much fun, and it helps to explain some of the you know, in Genesis, I'm going to go there. Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, so many times people would look at that, especially non-Jewish people looking at where it says, and the sons of God saw that the daughters of Adam were beautiful, and they decided to take them as wives, and they interbred with them. And they said, whoa, this sounds really bizarre. If you take it at face value, you've got these watchers, these angelic beings that were appointed to watch over humanity and to appropriately teach them skills in a way that would bring glory to God. And then you ended up with these watchers who looked upon women, human women, and lusted after them, which then Paul later on says, and even the angels saw these women and and stumbled because of the exterior beauty. So don't just focus on the exterior beauty. Paul, that's what he's quoting. They stumbled, they left their estate and they interbred with humanity. And the early churches are looking at things, we can't have this sort of, I mean, that's actual sexual, sexual stuff. Let's just have it, you know, Adam and Eve's son, Seth, and his godly righteousness, and then Cain's family just inter, intermingled with each other. And the men of renown and the giants and the half demon spawn, let's just kind of metaphor, turn that into a metaphor. The early Jewish church, and even what I believe, we get into this like, no, that, this is, it happened. Every culture on the planet has some idea or thought process about a demigod, a half deity, half human creature. The, the biblical explanation is, yeah, these angels were supposed to stay and do what they were supposed to do. They didn't. They fell, and they caused all sorts of havoc, and they taught humans how to do stuff that they shouldn't have been taught how to do because it wasn't going to be for the glory of God. It was going to be for the furthering of the human race. We end up with the Tower of Babel. Okay, I'm coming back. Okay, it's so much fun. But we start getting into this, these areas of scriptures where what we see happening is Peter's referencing Jesus died. And he was in the grave for, you know, basically three days. When we count the three days, it's like Friday night, to Saturday night, to Sunday, and it's like, that doesn't quite, it it counts for the three days according to how they counted for the three days. And it says, in that time, he declared to the spirits in prison. Who are the spirits in prison? Uh, There's lots of thoughts on it, but some believe that the spirits in prison are the angels that were the chief violators who had taught the humans what to do and how to do it to, to invent ways of doing evil, and that they were locked up in outer darkness until such a time when they will receive final judgment. And some believe that Jesus went and he declared the goodness of the gospel of, here's what I'm going to do to redeem humanity, suckers. You meant to destroy it? This is what's going to happen. Other people thought it was for everybody who had died in the flood. The Bible doesn't actually say this is exactly what it is. It's one of those areas where we kind of go, awesome, cool, read Book of Enoch, and we come back to what are the main things. We have the resurrected and ascended Christ sitting at the right hand of God the Father with all angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him. We all together? Okay. That was kind of fun. 
finally, <laughs> since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the, in the, with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, in the flesh, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. Yes, this is an offensive weapon, and yes, we are charged to arm ourselves. This is not a Second Amendment de declaration where afterwards we're all going to, you know, shields, we're going to stand in line, go up the stairs, and, you know, take back America. That's not what I'm saying here, okay? It's not a bad idea. But um, the thought here is arm yourself with an offensive weapon, the way that you are thinking, the way Jesus said that we are to be thinking, being dead to sin and alive to Christ. Because as people who belong to Christ, we are people who are built to live and to think and to act different. Grandchild story. My six-year-old grandson, Owen, he doesn't play cops and robbers. He plays fugitives and special agents. His dad is a, is a decorated police officer and inevitably, you'll hear from the other room, okay, Mila, you run and try and get away and I'll call in the task force and we'll get you. And it's like, he's six. He wants to watch The Fugitive. He wants to watch these movies where he's like studying tactics and he's got well-meaning uncles and aunts who are like, should Owen be watching this? And Owen's just like right there. And every time, Owen will say something like this. Don't worry about me. I'm built different. <laughs> he's six. I'm built different. And he believes it's like, yeah, I know kids shouldn't watch this, but I'm Owen. I'm built different. There's an aspect of our relationship with Christ where he says, arm yourself with this. We are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Yeah, we're built different. This is how we roll. It's living in this type of armament. Being crucified with Christ. We are alive in him, not in our own strength. We are no longer have to be subject to our whims, to our passions, to the desires of this lost world. We don't engage in the debauchery. What's debauchery? Debauchery is uh, New Orleans at its worst. Debauchery is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's why it has to stay in Vegas because it's debauchery. It's dead behavior, stuff that leads to, I hope nobody finds out about that. I can't believe I did that. That's the stuff that our world says, this is the best you can do. And Jesus says, uh, no, we're dead to that. We don't live for that. Because we will all be held accountable we will all experience a judgment. The gospel good news is available to all people that in Christ, as we respond to the gospel good news, we are made alive by the Holy Spirit. Okay, all that to say, what are we doing with what we've heard today? What stands out to us? I would throw out a couple questions. What does it look like or how can you orient your life to be in Christ? Because if you're like me, you're going to be confronted on a regular basis with areas where you are in Christ, and then there's other areas of life where you're functioning not so much in Christ. Yes? What will we do? How will I be able to tell if my main orientation is rooted in Christ? 
What stands out to you from the wisdom of the Psalms? The way, walking in God's ways. When you hear, always be prepared to give an answer. If somebody were to ask you, you know, why do you serve Christ? What would your answer be? Think on that. Well, I don't know if it's a good answer. If it, is it your answer? Then it's a good answer. Is it legit? Is it like, yeah, this is why? Don't let anybody take that away from you. It doesn't have to be this great grand thing. Just like your testimony. I can remember being a little kid and hearing people giving their testimonies. And I felt terrible because I, I never killed anybody. This guy's talking, I killed two people. Never went to prison, but I killed two people. And it's like, so in order to get a testimony, what am I going to have to do? And we can, we, if, am I lost in it? Do you ever compare yourself and think, well, I, I never did that. I never did that. Guess what? The goal is not to have done it because God can and will rescue you from stuff, but you're left with these mountains of scars that are very difficult to work through and a past that keeps trying to draw us back in. May we not have to have the testimony of being rescued from all the grand dark stuff because there's enough in our flesh to be rescued from. What are some ways you can arm yourself like Christ to think like him? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I ask you to do a work in us. I pray that we would be armed with your mind and your thought processes. I pray that we would be people who put both feet of our life in the foundation of being in Christ. I pray that we would be willing to do what is right even when it costs us. Remind us, Lord, that we are built different, that we don't function according to the pattern of this world, but according to your pattern. Fill us with your wisdom, with your instruction, with your life, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've got prayer available right here in the back. Willie and Diane are going to be back by the trellis here. If you wanted to start a relationship with Jesus today, you can check out our Connect and Grow area. There's uh, some packets on the far right side called Yes Packets that will kind of detail what it means to begin walking with Jesus. I'm going to pray a blessing over us, and then Cassidy's going to give us some instruction for our family feast. So let me do this. The Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. May he also bless this food to our bodies in the time that we have interacted with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a podcast presentation of Hillside Foursquare Church in Reno, Nevada. You can reach us via email at web at hillside4.org. That's W-E-B at hillside, the number 4, dot org.